morning. Hey, if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to grab it. If you do not have one, um, you can take the one that's in the seat in front of you underneath. That's our gift to you. We want you to keep that uh, so you can write in it, make notes, highlight, keep that with you. If you don't like the hardback ones, you can stop probably at Lost and Found and find some leather-bound one and <laughs> scratch somebody else's name off of it. You got yourself a new Bible. So either way, I want to encourage you these next four weeks, bring your Bible with you. Um, and that way, uh, you're right there with us in Colossians chapter 1, this unconventional approach to preaching uh, Christmas. Can I be transparent with you? No? Yeah. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, preaching Christmas is hard uh, because the fear that you've heard it all. And we're just going to, and so uh, I think Colossians 1 is going to challenge us in some pretty uh, deep ways. But let me set us up this way. About a month ago, I took my son, my oldest son, Caleb, to the Pacers versus Boston Celtics game. Now, we live in Brownsburg, and um, my mother-in-law teaches in Brownsburg, and we wanted to go and support uh, Gordon Hayward. And so we were actually there cheering on the Celtics. Sorry. Um, cheering on Gordon Hayward, all right? Uh, anyway, we're at the game, and I, one of the joys of my life is getting to do these type of things with my kids. And so I'm sitting there with my oldest, and we're watching the game. It's a lot of fun. And there's about uh, 20 seconds left in the game, and the Pacers are down by four, and I leaned over to my son and made a big mistake. I said, hey, bud, do you want to start heading out of here? Because the game's over. Uh, and he said, please, can we just stay for the whole game? I said, um, buddy, you don't understand. Look around. You see all these people? They're all going to be leaving at the same time. And if we can go now, we're going to get in our car and be out of here before all of the craziness. And he said, Dad, please, I just... And before I could finish talking to him again, the Pacers score, and now they're down by two. Well, then Kyrie Irving, who plays for the Boston Celtics, gets blocked, and Victor Oladipo gets the ball. And in that moment, my son looked at me, and he said these words. I promise you, he said it just like this. He said, Dad, you still think there's no hope? And if you saw the game, you know Victor Oladipo dribbled up the court, pulled up for three, and won the game. And uh, I have heard about that <laughs> repeatedly. But I learned a really valuable lesson, uh, honestly, that day from my son and through that experience. I am a person, and maybe you're like me. I tend to, to kind of give up hope a little bit too soon. Um, and, and much like that, I learned this from my son, too. As long as there's still time in the game, there's still a chance, unless it's Kentucky playing Duke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, got to, ben will appreciate that. He's a wildcat guy. Um, maybe you are like me, though. I, I come to this season of Christmas each year, and I have these like high hopes. I think, man, this is going to be the year that we don't have that December 26th Christmas hangover, right, when the credit card bill comes or when... You know, you've gone too far, you've done too many different things, or you're just, like, completely um, frustrated with all the food and all the parties and all the gatherings and all the get-together. I just think, man, this is going to be different. We're going to add some spiritual depth to Christmas this year. And so you set out. I'm going to do this. This is what we're going to do. We're going to have a really good Christmas season this year. Here we go. And then, boom, it doesn't work out. I saw a video that kind of... Uh, shows how I feel coming into this Christmas season pretty consistently. Maybe you saw this, this little bear trying to make its way to its mom. And to me, that's like me trying to make uh, depth and value to Christmas every year. Like, we're going to do this. This is going to be different. 
but no, it's not going to work out, and we're just going to continually slip back down, and we're not going to make our way. Maybe you felt that way. Maybe you thought, man, Christmas will be different this year, and then you reflected on your year, and you thought, nope, here we go, because it's just been one of those years. I thought I was going to get ahead. I thought we were going to make it. We just put all the effort into it. We're climbing, we're, and we're going to do it this year. Christmas will be meaningful in our home, but no, you just slip down, and you fall again. And this has been my approach. And I'll tell you, look, he's going to fall there, and then eventually the bear makes it, okay? Just so <laughs> you're aware, okay? Eventually they make it. But have you ever been there? You just kind of feel like, hey, we have to do it different. It has to have more meaning. This season, man, I, I want to really make it about uh, the hope that we have in Jesus. But maybe you're like, Rob, we got no problem with that. My biggest uh, frustration is that there's so much going on that, we talk about family time, but we rarely have family time at Christmas time. We talk about slowing down, but it seems like work just picks up at this season. We talk about being financially responsible, and yet every single year we just overspend and we overdo it. And I'm just frustrated. And by the time Christmas rolls around, I just can't wait for it to be over. That's what I think about. That's my frustration with Christmas. Maybe you feel like my son Noah did last year at the end of Christmas. You see, this was him. He's like, I'm done. I'm, I'm spent. I've had enough of Christmas. I don't want anything else. Maybe you feel like that. I don't know what it's like in your home, but I do know this. There's a big concern that I have for our church family because we live in a culture that is going to try its best to keep you from getting deeper and making more out of this next season. And if you've ever felt that pressure, if you've ever felt like you're in that cycle, then I think you're going to be able to relate to the Christians that lived in this town called Colossae. See, we have to know a little bit about the background of this town to really appreciate what we're about to study for these next four weeks. This town was once a really thriving city. Though it was always small, people came from all over the known world to stop at this place. You'd have dignitaries and world leaders. They all wanted to stop in this town because they produced this really luxurious red cloth. Well, by the time this letter is written to this church from the Apostle Paul, all of that had changed. They went from this thriving city to this forgotten town. They went from this place that everyone wanted to visit to the place that anyone and everyone should try with all of their resources to avoid. It was just a forgotten, deserted place. Now, the history of it, though, makes, uh, makes anybody think it should be significant. I mean, this was a part of the Roman Empire. And if you know your history, you know that before Rome and since Rome, we've never seen anything like Rome. Anybody who's majored in history, anybody who's taught history would tell you that the, the Roman Empire is, is one of the pinnacles of human history. It is unbelievable what you learn about this empire when you really jump in and study it. And this town was a part of that empire. I mean, the, the, it was, 40, was 42,000, okay, 4,200 miles wide. 4,200 miles wide, this empire. But let me put it in perspective. From sea to shining sea, the U.S. is 3,330 miles wide. Okay, so 4,200 miles wide. That's like India to Europe. That's the Roman Empire. They ruled the known world for 1,500 years. Nobody challenged them. 1,500 years. I want you to let that set in. This was the world power for 1,500 years. The U.S., depending on where you put the date of, of the U.S., 242 years. 1,500 years they ruled. And what they did is still felt in our world today. Some of the innovations, some of the things that came about. Like take, for example, Roman roads. The first Roman road was built around 312 B.C. 
By the time the letter is written to the Colossian church, there's 50,000 miles of roads all through the Roman Empire, all leading you to Rome. It's where we get the phrase, all roads lead to Rome. Now, what had happened with these roads is they're still used today. 2,000 years later, there's still some of their roads and their bridges that are used to this day. That baffles me. Blows me away. They built roads faster and more efficiently, and they lasted longer than we do today. Think about that. If you don't agree with me, try to drive on 465 near Meridian and tell me you don't need an alignment when you're done, right? (laughs) They were incredible innovators. And when the church at Colossae, this letter arrives, they had actually built roads to help people bypass this town. They'd built roads for the express purpose of saying, you don't want to go there. Let me build this road, all this resources to get you from having to stop in this place. Just imagine this is where you're from or this is where you live. Imagine for a moment that you live in a place where everything around you is trying to get people to forget you. Imagine that you live in a place where uh, everyone else seems to be thriving. These places like uh, Hierapolis and Laodicea, these bigger cities that were around uh, Colossae were thriving and people loved them, but they were forgetting all about them. You just feel so forgotten and left behind. As a matter of fact, when Jesus sends his letters to the church in Revelation chapter 2, there are seven letters sent out, and they go to Laodicea and all around, but they don't go to Colossae because this town wasn't even there then. See, just a few years after this letter is written, an earthquake hits the region, and it completely wipes the town off the map. And it takes them over 140 years before they even start to rebuild the city. And here's the question I wrestled with studying all that. The Holy Spirit knew that this earthquake would come. The Holy Spirit knew that this town was going to get wiped out. Just a few years after this letter arrived, why did the Apostle Paul even bother writing the letter? Why even pen a letter that is to realign their focus on their true hope? Why even write that letter if the place is going to be gone in just a few years? Because we tend to say and lose our hope a little bit quicker than God does. See, the other thing that these... Christians were up against those. They were Gentiles, like all of us. And so when they became Christians, somebody came to them and presented them the gospel and reasoned to them from the Old Testament. So they would pull out the Old Testament scriptures. They would say, this Messiah is coming. Jesus is the Messiah. They would present the gospel to them. They would become Christians. They would begin living this Christian life. And it was a thrill and it was incredible, except the people that surrounded them had a Jewish background. And their goal was to come in. And Paul calls this, later on in the letter to the Colossians, a false philosophy, they would come in and say, hey, if you become a Christian and you're not a Jew, if you're not coming the Jewish way, then you're going to be left out, cut away from the people of God. This cannot be the truth. This cannot be the real way. This is not the direction that you want to live your life. You can't go. Jesus can't be the Messiah. He can't be the real meaning. He cannot be the source of your hope. That should not be the way that you're living your life. And so you have these Christians These young Christians living in this forgotten town with little hope physically around them, now spiritually being attacked, told that the very thing they're banking their entire life on is not true, and they should give up hope there as well. And so the Apostle Paul says, I've got a concern for these Christians, that everything around them is telling them that what they are living their life for can't be true, and it's going to eventually wear away at the foundation of their entire life, and I've got to encourage them. So this letter is like a boost of encouragement intended to realign and reaffirm the confidence that they have in their hope in Jesus. As you think about it, the situation that was facing the Colossians is not too far off from the situation that we Christians living in our culture experience today. A little bit less intense, but all the same. We live in a culture that says that 
Jesus cannot be the reason for this season. And so what do they do? They get us to get our mind on anything else that they possibly can. And if your faith is shallow, this is where this gets a little bit difficult. If your faith doesn't have deep roots, when the wave of opposition comes, you will crumble. It will be an extreme, extreme difficulty in your life for you to be able to withstand a culture that's telling you that your faith in Jesus. Look, what I'm finding as I'm looking at the culture is that Christianity is the only religion, philosophy, or worldview that it is acceptable to publicly oppose in our world today. You can make fun of them. You can oppose them. You can say it's not true. You can take them to task. And continually, if you don't have a strong enough faith and you keep getting all the laughter and all the opposition and all, all of this coming your way, and it's always been surface level, meaning you've always just attended a church and listened to some guy talk to you from a stage and you've not dug in deep, then that opposition, you're no match for it. I've got this fear. It kind of drives a little bit of what I do. Again, I guess this is Vulnerability Sunday. Uh, but one of my fears is for my kids because they have this label that I've always like, drove, it always drove me nuts when I thought about other people, except for my wife, I love her. But they're PKs, they're preacher's kids, they're pastor's kids. And so there's gonna have this assumption and this temptation to just take on what they've been told. They're gonna wanna take on my faith and they're gonna wanna take on some of the rhythms that are in our family. And they're just gonna try to assume it if we don't intentionally help them understand it has to be theirs. See, this fear is backed up by evidence, friends. Eight out of ten kids that come, 78%, so I'm, I'm rounding up a little bit, but eight, let's just say eight, 80% of kids that grow up in evangelical Christian homes, when they get on the campus of a secular college or university in America today, eight out of ten of them within a four-year span will walk away from Jesus for good. So if we took ten of our students that are seniors in high school here at New Hope and we lined them up on the stage, we could pick eight of them and say, statistically, you won't be following Jesus in four years. See, if we don't take this faith thing seriously, then our hope is shallow. And of course, Christmas will come and it'll be traditions and, and parties and presents. And, and we will have that tra very traditional Christmas hangover come December 26th of either craving this season to come back because it gave us a little bit of joy in the midst of a really difficult year or recovering from overspending, overeating, and overmeeting with people. Paul knew this. He knew that, hey, when the opposition comes, you have to have deep roots. This is not a game to be played. And so he approaches this group of Christians. This is a really unique situation because Paul had never been to Colossae. He didn't know these people in person. He's in prison in Rome when he's writing this letter to them. And so he takes that and he says, hey, I'm an apostle. And he's not flexing on them. He's just telling them, like, hey, this is who I am. Like, I've been called by God. And so I'm an apostle. And so I carry a certain kind of authority when I write. And so you're going to notice that there's that. There's this, hey, coming from this apostle. Here it is. But then he takes on this other tone and he includes in this letter a message from their pastor, Epaphras. And he says, hey, Epaphras has a deep love and concern for you. And we're going to look at that here in a moment. So he has this authority role and this pastoral role. And he mixes them together to encourage them to have deeper roots to take faith very seriously. Look at how he, he lays it out in Colossians chapter 4. So just flip over to chapter 4 real quick. And in verse 12, he describes the heart that Epaphras has for these Christians. It says, Epaphras, who is one of you, and so what he's meaning is this, Epaphras is, he's actually one of the Colossians. He would have grown up there. 
He would have traveled to a, a city called Ephesus, much bigger than Colossae. He would have come to Ephesus, and Paul was there when Epaphras came there. Paul had spent two and a half years in Ephesus ministering and loving and pastoring these people. And Epaphras came underneath Paul's teaching during that season and inevitably became a Christian. So then Paul, after discipling Epaphras, sends him back home to his town of Colossae. And he says, go there. And, and he goes and he starts a church. And he begins to love and care for these people. So Paul's words ring really true to him. He says, Epaphras, who's one of you, he's one of you. You know him, he loves you, and he cares for you deeply. And they would have heard this from Paul, and they would have said, hey, wait, we can listen to this guy, Paul, because he's our pastor's pastor. He's the one that led the guy that has led us to Christ. Like, we can trust him. And he says, look at how he describes him, though. He doesn't say, remember that dynamic speaker who just wowed you everything? No. He says, Epaphras, what you need to know about his heart is this, that he is a servant of Christ Jesus. He greets you, but he's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Like, he's praying for you so often, and he struggles because he cares so deeply for you. And the focus of those prayers that are so difficult for him are that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So he says his heart beat for you, his, his heartbeat for you and his struggle for you is that you would stand firm. And it's a picture of standing in the, in the shallow part of the ocean when a big wave's coming. And have you dug your feet deep enough into the stand to stand firm and withstand that wave hitting you? That's what he's saying. He, he is so labor, He labors over you so that you will grow deep, have deep roots and a deep faith so that when the opposition comes your way, not if, but when that opposition comes your way and begins to tempt you, your hope will be secure. He says, and, and in addition to that, he wants you to be fully assured. That's an intellectual concept he's communicating there. He's saying, look, your faith cannot just be an emotional experience or a feeling that you have. There's hard work that goes into a deep faith. You have to do the hard work of going deeper and learning more and, and so you can be fully assured. And here's what I've learned about this. What I've learned in my journey is this, that it's both an emotional pull that brings you to Jesus, but it's an intellectual uh, piece as well. And they come together to form assurance. So Paul says, man, this guy loves you. I think every pastor should model their ministry like Epaphras. A guy we don't talk about very often. They should know the names of the people in their flock. That's why I love our elders here at New Hope. Their goal is to shepherd and to take care of this place. Do the hard work of, of loving and, and getting to know the people that are in the church. So that you, when you go to pray for them, it's not just this surface level thing. Yeah, Lord, please bless them. It's a struggle because you want them to be spiritually mature. Well, he, in addition to saying, hey, Epaphras has this pastoral heart, I need to remind you that I am an apostle. And so in chapter 2, he kind of reveals his heart in writing this letter. In verses 6 and 7, he says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. Like, you cannot unintentionally walk. Right? You, you, one foot in front of the other. You have to intentionally walk, intentionally make this progress. And then he says this, this is what that life will look like. It's rooted and it's built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So his descriptor is, hey, I want you to have deep roots so that you can stand mature and you can be established in the faith, meaning rock solid. When the opposition comes, you're not moving either. The pictures of a strong tree with a very strong foundation that's going to withstand the winds. I don't know if many of you remember this, but in the mid-90s, the University of Arizona built what they called Biosphere 2. 
and, and for all intents and purposes, it's a biodome. And as a matter of fact, I believe today, I could be wrong here, fact check me later, but I think it's still the largest greenhouse in the world. And it's at the University of Arizona. And what they learned when they built this thing was fascinating. They wanted to be able to create an atmosphere where sustainable life was able to be created. And so they did. And a lot of good came from it. But one of the early lessons that they learned was that their trees were growing abnormally fast, faster than normal, but then they would all die. They continually died just over and over and over again. So they would grow, and then under their own weight, they couldn't withstand even their own weight, and they would fall over. And so they began to do some research, and they, fig they found out that the reason that the trees were growing so fast but then falling over is because their roots weren't going deep. Because in order for a tree to grow deep roots, it needs the wind. And they hadn't recreated the wind inside the biodome. The very thing that the deep roots protected them from was required in order to have the deep roots. You see, this is what Paul is saying to us. The very thing that a deep-rooted faith will help you from only gets stronger when that opposition comes and you see it properly and you have the right kind of hope and you've placed your hope in the right place. And so Paul lays, all of this is important as we begin this study of Colossians chapter 1. Kind of have this background, you understand the heart behind why this guy is approaching things the way he is. And so we, we start in Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. And Paul writes these words, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Meaning, this is not a position I aspired to. This is not an achievement that I attained. This is not a degree that I earned. God called me to this role. He set me aside specifically for this. This is simply who I am. And as an apostle, one with this authority, he greets them. Verse 2, he says, to the saints and faithful brothers. So you could say, to the saints, another way of saying Christians. To all the Christians living in Colossae, you group of Christians that have easily been forgotten a group of Christians that are being tempted to abandon this hope that you have built your life upon. This group, those of you that are in Christ, he says, here's the heart behind what I'm about to say to you. I want you to experience grace and peace from Jesus. Like, here's the tone that I want you to experience what you're about to read. You see, most of the Christians in Colossae weren't able to read, so this would have been read out loud. And the tone at which he wanted it to be received was one of grace and peace. He continues, verse 3 through 8, he says this, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have shown to all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, this pastor that loved them, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So he says, hey, for a forgotten town, I want to start out by telling you that what everybody else is trying to ignore, we've heard there's some really vibrant faith going on. You see, these Christians, while tempted, hadn't yet given in. This is not a recovery letter, like, please come back to the faith. This is, hey, this is happening, and if you're not intentional, this is what will happen. But man, right now, you guys are living a very vibrant, deep, good faith. You guys remember the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. If you're not familiar with your Bible, the, Jesus tells this story where a, a son asks for an, his inheritance early, and he goes away, and he squanders it, living a sinful life. And the end of the story, the father runs out to him and embraces him and welcomes him, back, welcomes him back into the family. And everybody's celebrating, and there's this giant party except for one person. Who was the one that was not happy? The older brother. 
But how did he even know his brother had come home? Because he saw a party that he couldn't ignore. He saw something going on. That, like, I can't, what in the world? What's going on? Well, your brother's come home. That's why they're having the party. Oh. You see, this is what Paul's saying here. Like, hey, Epaphras has told us that this faith that you have is so vibrant right now that we, it's, the rest of the world can't ignore it. They can build roads around it. They can try to avoid it. But there's something happening in that town that's real. And it's deep. He says, and for that we're really grateful because it's a true faith. But he gives us a formula in this passage. It's a warning shot, if you will, intended to really boost our confidence. And he says, here's the thing, though. If you don't keep that faith deep, things are going to go bad for you. And he words it in verses 3 and 4 this way. He says, you have this hope laid up for you in heaven. But that hope is grounded in two things. He says, it's your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the love that you showed other people. It's kind of this formula, meaning the question I think we should all ask entering into this Christmas season in our own lives is this, where am I placing my deepest hope? And how do I know? How do I know that this Christmas is going to be different? How do I know that this season, how do I know that my circumstances aren't dictating my hope and my situation and my finances and my workload and, and all these things that have happened to me this past year? How do I know that my hope is really grounded? He says, well, two things. It will express itself in your faith. And here, faith is not just intellectual. It's lived out. He says, so watch this person live, and the faith that they live with will reveal where they've placed their deepest hope. And the love that they express to all, all the people that are around them will also reveal it. And Paul says to them, your faith is deep, and it's revealing a very real hope that you have that's dictating your entire life, and the love you've shown to all other Christians is, but you've got to be careful because if that faith gets shallow, things are going to go south. You see, when Christians don't take their faith seriously, when we approach faith as though it's, it's just a part of who we are and not our whole life, it gets pretty shallow pretty quick. There's some warning signs here. The first one is this. See, when your faith is shallow, you are likely to water down the gospel and give in to cultural expectations. You will not stand firm for the truth because you will have not spent time knowing the truth. And so as the culture begins to weigh on you and says, hey, you can be a Christian, but let's just modify this, and you can change this, and you can do this. As you begin to really pour into your life, you realize, hey, my faith is pretty shallow, and now, yeah, everything is different. So Christmas really is about buying gifts and going to parties, and there's not really much left to it. We'll sneak in the gospel story on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, and we'll call it a day, and we'll just get through it and get to the next year. And we're kind of missing out on this real hope that God has for us. In addition to that, if your faith is shallow... It's going, to, it's going to cause you to hesitate and be unsure of the gospel. Meaning, when someone asks you, why does it matter? You haven't done the homework. You haven't really invested in understanding why you believe what you believe. You haven't really taken this very seriously. In those moments, we begin to shy away, hesitate. And any challenge that comes our way just kind of wipes us out. Guys, this is my fear for the church in the future. If we depend solely on other people for everything and we don't do the work ourselves, when a challenge comes, it's going to wipe us out. When our kids, when you look at your children and you say, when you get to college, if I haven't prepared you well, and the challenges are going to come, and it's, it's just going to wipe you out. In addition to that, when your faith is shallow, you're going to be overcome by anxiety. You're going to feel all the pressure of everything that's going on around you. It's going to create, I don't know if you've been there. I've, I've experienced this in my life. And what happens is if we don't have a deep faith, in those moments, we're going to be tempted to look and find our confidence in something other than Jesus. 
And you see people do this all the time. This is where the self-help movement came from. This is why we always want to add things to faith, and we seem to forget that it's Jesus plus nothing that really equals everything. But we say, Jesus plus, let me add these other things because I've got these issues that he couldn't possibly understand. And he's, Paul's saying here, when your faith is deep and the roots go really deep and the wind blows, then you're going to stand firm. Jesus taught this at the end of his most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. He got to the end of it and he seemed to uh, know, because he's Jesus, he knew that we would be tempted to make the Sermon on the Mount a to-do list. And he said, no, no, this is about who you're becoming. Because the, the rains are going to rise and the storm's going to come and the wind is going to blow and it's going to crash up against you. And if your foundation is weak, I would say, Paul might word it, if your roots are shallow, then your whole life will crash. And Christmas just becomes this thing, right? Now, if this describes you, let me encourage you just a little bit. Until the game's over, there's always room for hope. And this Christian faith is about taking very seriously what God has called you to, being very intentional, and it's about who you're becoming, not just what you're doing. We have this tendency to hear a sermon like this, walk out of here and say, let's go, let's go, let's go. By Tuesday, I'll be a mature Christian. I like the way Eugene Peterson says it. He says this, we often try to find quick solutions for things that are intended to take more time. See, this process of you becoming something takes time. And you're going to have milestone moments that take you deeper that make more from your life. I remember after my sophomore year of college, I had become a Christian, and I was a Christian, and I had a strong faith, but I wasn't taking everything as seriously as I should. And I had this friend that uh, was on the basketball team with me in college, and when we would travel to different places, we were roommates together. And his name was Josh, and we got really close that my sophomore year of college. And, and so I came home, and I was going to speak at this camp, and it was just another thing that I was going to do again. There was not a lot of depth. It was like this shallow thing. And I remember standing in the parking lot of this camp, and I get a call from another friend of mine named Tim, and he said, hey, Rob, um, Josh was killed yesterday. And I just, I like remember this feeling like coming up against me. Like, I, don't, I don't know what's next. I don't know what to do. I remember sitting down in the parking lot and just weeping. Josh was on a mission trip and removing trees at this school with his dad, and a tree fell and hit him and killed him. It just rocked me. Spent about, spent about a month just trying to think through, okay, honestly, my roots were pretty shallow, and I, was, I don't know what to do with my life. And I got to read through some of his prayer journals, and it surprised a lot of us how deep it was. It was just incredible. And through that, I realized, I just came to this conclusion. This was just one of my moments where I realized, hey, this, these roots are a little too shallow. They need to get deeper. And that this isn't a game, this faith thing. This isn't some game. This, this isn't intended just to be a part of my life. This has to be all of my life, or really, it's none of my life. I got very serious about my faith and about getting to know Jesus and spending more time with Him. And the Lord led me through that season and deepened the roots. The wind of that experience deepened the roots. See, I like the way that Vincent Donovan describes what faith should really look like in our lives as we begin the journey through this, and that faith will produce a hope. But he says that faith is not just this thing that's a part of you. He was translating um, for the Bible, translating the Bible into a language that the Maasai warriors could understand. And now, if you don't know, the Maasai warriors, they're the real deal, okay? They're in Africa. And actually, they, they are uh, some of the oldest tradition of ushering boys into manhood 
Okay? We don't do a good job of that in America. Uh, we just kind of assume it, like, hey, are you 18? Well, let's just push adolescence to 40, right? And, but for them, they're very intentional, and they say, hey, no, we want to be very intentional, and they do it different than us, right? Because to become a man as a Maasai warrior, you've got to kill a lion with your bare hands. So, like, we're not going to do that. But, like, I have a group of pastor friends, and we're really getting intentional with our sons and saying, hey, we want to be very intentional starting at a very early, early age to usher them into being godly men. And that comes from them. Well, this guy's translating the Bible for them, and he comes to this word of faith. And he says, hey, we're going to translate it this way. And he describes in his book about an interaction that he had with uh, this Maasai warrior elder. And he says this, The elder contended that the word chosen was unsatisfactory because it meant to agree to. He said that it was similar to a white hunter shooting an animal with a gun from a great distance. He said only his eyes and his fingers took part in that act. He said we should find another word. He said for a man really to believe is like a lion going after its prey. His nose and his eyes and his ears, they pick up the prey to find where it is. His legs give him the speed to catch it. All the power in his body is involved in that terrible death leap and single blow to the neck, of the front, the neck with the front paw, the blow that actually kills the prey. It says, and as that animal goes down, the lion envelops it in his arms. Africans call the front, anim- the front legs of a, a lion its arms. He pulls the animal to himself and makes it a part of himself. He said, this is the way the lion kills. This is the way man believes. This is what faith should be. He says, it's all encompassing. It's not an element of your life that is described. It is all of your life. It is the lens that you filter everything that you experience through. Faith is everything to you or nothing at all. And that faith reveals where you've placed your deepest hope. And here's the thing. We're all hopers. We hope. We're in a culture of hoping in all kinds of things. And, right? We collect four-leaf clovers. Uh, we, we wish upon an evening star. We, we have genies that come out of bottles and grant us three wishes, right? After Thanksgiving dinner, many of you got the bones of the turkey, and you were looking for what bone? The wishbone, which I, for the life of me, can't figure out why in the world that ever even was a thing. But if you break it, and whoever has the larger part of the bone, their wish is going to come true, and it never does. But anyway... We hope all the time, guys. We just do. That's the way we are. I think hope comes in two ways. Hope comes in what you're hoping for and who you're hoping in. See, we hope for a lot of different things. Like, I hope I get that girl. I hope I get that job. I hope I get that house. Or I hope I get that girl that gets that job and gets that house, right? (laughs) We hope for all kinds of different things. I hope that this depression will lift. I hope that it's not cancer. And then one day it is. If not cancer, it's something else. Because the things that we hope for, they come and go. They come and go. And when they're gone, we're left with this deeper question of what is it that, or who is it that I've actually placed my deeper hope in? See, all of the Bible, the entire thing points to this man who was born as a baby. God. And it doesn't point us to him because he's going to get us this or he's going to get us that. Those things come and they go. It points to him because he is the one, the only, that we can place our hope in that will never fail or fade. He will never let us go. He's the one that we read about, went on a rescue mission for us. He was born as a baby, lived a perfect life, died the death that we deserved to die, resurrected from the dead, and that changes everything for us. That changes the entire story for us. This God that was born as a baby. This rescue mission that started on Christmas morning. 
So my question to you entering into this Advent season, this Christmas season, for you to wrestle with this next week is this. Where are you placing your deepest hope? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. This time that we have built into our schedules to slow down a little bit and to bring some focus to you so we can strengthen our foundation. God, I love the gathering of the church. I love these people. I love seeing them, talking to them. I really do, and, and I, I want to struggle. I want us each to struggle for one another in our prayers so that we can stand mature, so that we can be fully assured, so that we can have deep roots that lead to a full maturity. God, we thank you for making that possible because left to ourselves, we just can't do it. Left to ourselves, we're just like that little bear just continually falling down the hill. But you've given us what we didn't deserve and you've given it to us freely and for that we're grateful. So my prayer as we enter into this season is that we would be intentional. We would stop assuming that we would get serious. We would deepen our roots and strengthen our faith. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love these next few moments every week. If you're new around here, we celebrate communion every single week, and I would contend that it's probably the most important thing we do as we gather. Because I need this every week. I need to realign myself because I've hit the potholes on 465 spiritually all the time. And my life gets out of whack, and I just need this time because I don't know about you, but I feel like life is just so fast-paced. We're just going and going and going, and one Sunday leads to another, and I can't believe it's almost Christmas. And so each week we build into the gathering this time for you to kind of have to slow down and allow those thoughts, those distractions, those pressures to kind of fade for a little bit. And for these next few moments, you can just focus on some unresolved sin in your heart, on building up gratitude in your heart for what Jesus has done for you. And if you're intentional, these next few moments will deepen the roots of your faith. They will. And so will you join us in these next few moments spending time with Jesus in communion?